Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome, everyone, to episode 163 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. I am really excited about this guest uh, today. Uh, Harley Jane Kozak goes back to the beginning of SG-1 in Cold Lazarus, one of the most important episodes of uh, the show. It established so much of what came in the next 340-some-odd episodes of the series. But before we get her uh, on uh, to discuss her uh, career and her life, I want you uh, to consider clicking that like button. It makes a difference with the uh, uh, show's uh, uh, algorithm and will definitely help uh, YouTube grow our audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click on the subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next uh, few weeks on the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. As this is a live show, Harley is with us right now, and so if you are in the YouTube chat, you can submit questions to her, and my moderating team uh, will go ahead and add those uh, to a document that we're watching, and we'll get those over to her in the second half of the show. But without further ado, Harley Jane Kozak, Sarah O'Neill in uh, Stargate SG-1, an award-winning author, and also uh, uh, audio uh, pod, uh, producer as well of, of book content as well. Narrator. So where's the, the word? I've got the word up here somewhere. How are you? I'm great, David. Thank you for having me here. I am. I'm I, so excited. I'm, I'm so excited to have you. I, I have been a fan of yours for years now. And, you know, it was just when, when you said yes, I was like, oh, man, this one is going to be great. So it's do you know how important uh, your role is in this one episode uh, of the show to, to so much that that came later? You know, I think I'm more aware of it now that I have written books myself. Okay. Um, and also that I've had children myself okay. because we're talking an episode that goes back, is it 25 years? Yes, exactly. Okay. My math is not my strong suit, but <laughs> that's a long time ago. And also, I have to admit, and I'm sorry if this offends anybody, but I wasn't really aware of Stargate mm -hmm. before I was hired. And I don't remember many of the circumstances that led up to it. I think I had worked maybe for Jonathan Glassner on something. And I think that's how I got the job. I don't remember auditioning. I think maybe they just called my agent. I just don't remember. But I remember that suddenly I was in Vancouver, um, which is a great city. And I'm, I'm, I've worked there, uh, you know, several times. And I remember meeting Richard Dean Anderson, which was thrilling, even though I didn't, 
I wasn't like a fan, but he was delightful. Of course, he was famous enough that even if you didn't know his work, you knew him. Right. Right. And uh, and everybody was extremely nice. And I'm not sure, but I think I might have filmed all of that in one day. Really? Wow. And I'm not sure about that. But, it's, but it was but pre- it was quick. It was compressed. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, maybe it was like two days. So, you know, as you know, you film things according to the location, typically. So I remember filming the outside our house, mm. you know, Sarah and Jack's house. And then... Um, and then the hospital might have been a different. But anyway, it was very compressed. It was very short. I had a lovely time. And uh, and then I went home. And I think when the episode aired on TV for the first time, I was working on a sitcom that was just driving everybody crazy. It was a lot of CGI and a lot of special effects. And uh, it we were just working around the clock. And I don't think I saw it on real TV. Plus I was about to get married. So, <laughs> so I, were busy. I had a lot going on. And so I don't know at what point I saw the episode, which is crazy. And then I remember, but I, here's what I do remember. It was so sad reading that script. I was crying. I was crying so much. And then, of course, when you're filming, you're hoping to be able to cry when you're supposed to cry. And I remember thinking, oh, I didn't cry enough. But now here's the funny thing. So I was watching it last night. Right. And I was crying so much. My daughter said, what is up with you? I said, I'm watching this episode. Anyway. I'm, I, I think in retrospect, I think Sarah cried enough. You know, I think the shock of seeing her little nine-year-old boy was so intense that there's times that the tears aren't your first response. I think it was perfectly fine. And it was the most moving episode. And just, you know, Richard Dean Anderson working with himself as both aspects of himself was so beautiful. And then of course I had to go back and watch the first episode, I guess the pilot, which I think was maybe a two hour pilot. It was Mm -hmm. a long time. Anyway, I was up really late watching Stargate never having. And I thought, how could I not be a fan of this show? I'm crazy about Star Trek, the original series, Star Wars. Like I'm a, I love sci-fi. How did I not see this show? What I love most about sci-fi and, uh, well, uh, a lot of other genres as well, is that team atmosphere. Yeah. Like, I love a story about a team. And that was so beautiful. Beautiful. The origin story of how the team came together. And um, honestly, I think I'm going to be a retroactive fan of the series. I think I'm going to watch the whole thing. I think I, I've been going through your website here and we'll, we'll pull it up. Harley Jane Kozak.com. Um, you have uh, your, your interests posted about two thirds of the way down. And I was honestly going, why isn't Stargate on here? And it was, <laughs> I think because I mean, we're looking, I'm looking at Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm looking Buffy, you know, and it's like, I can't wait to talk to her about this show because I, I think she'll love it. 
you know, and I really, I have friends who are just watching it now, how having watched me do this and they're like, Oh yeah, I get it. You know, it's like, I I just didn't, I just didn't know about it before, you know, and you're in the thick of it. You're working on this stuff. You know, you don't have time to sit down and watch it. So I get it. But I discovered Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, you know, years after the fact. Mm. But I remember when I was doing this sitcom that was uh, in 1997 when Stargate, I guess, premiered, right? And um, my daughter on the show, who was this little, I don't know, 13-year-old, let's say, she was saying, do you watch Buffy? <laughs> and I said, what is Buffy? and anyway this kid said you gotta watch Buffy and then as I went through my life in the 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 ensuing you know next 10 or 15 years so many people that I really respected as artists were closet Buffy fans because they had kids that got them watching Buffy and I finally thought okay I gotta see what this is about well now I feel that way and I watched all seven seasons all the way through my I have three kids who think they're not sci-fi fans. They, you know, I have to go to Marvel movies by myself. Aww. I tried. I really, I did my best, but I raised them wrong because none of them are fans of this. And they roll their eyes and, oh, there she is watching Buffy again and crying. So um, now I can see that that's going to happen now with Stargate. It's, it's a great, go back to the movie um, first. I would. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Your yeah, yeah. story begins in the film. Your story, oh. Sarah's story, because the the opening shot of 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 the O'Neills in their house is she standing by the window and and the uh, the Air Force is coming in to reactivate him to send him on his first mission, and uh, the kid's death is fresh and he's literally in the kid's bedroom holding the gun in his hand, contemplating oh. killing himself, and that's what you guys picked up from in the movie. We're obviously a year later, you know. She's she's dealt, I'm sure, dealt with the a, a huge bulk of this grief and is beginning to move on. Her dad's there with her fixing the fixing the vehicle, you know, and then Jack just shows up, you know, yeah. out of the blue and asks yeah. about his son. And your reaction is perfect. It's like, what do you mean? Where Char- where, where do you expect Charlie yeah. is to be having no idea that he's an alien? Th- right. He says things that are odd. But then, but I don't stop to pursue him because just the emotional reality of him there after all this time and all the stuff that's gone on sort of overwhelms everything else, except for those moments of, wait, what? Right. Yeah. Exactly. What the heck is happening here? I'm I'm delighted that you love it. I can't believe it. And I, I only knew... I I guess I only remembered my part of it. Well, because I didn't, I wasn't watching the show. Of course, the show hadn't been, hadn't premiered yet. So all I really got was episode six. Like that was the script I had when I was acting in it. And whatever I knew about what happened earlier, it's like reading a summary of something. It's not the same. So you read and you go, okay, and spaceship and whatever, whatever, and aliens, whatever, whatever. (laughs) All I really cared about was my emotional reality as this woman who lost her little boy and whose husband then couldn't deal with it, you know, like 
taciturn Irish guy takes off. Actually, and she that, divorced him. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, but still. But you know, but still. And then I mean, also, they divorced each other, but she left. Yeah. Okay, but it so. says they're separate. Like That's somebody true. in the show says, but they're separated. Also, I should have gone back. Was she wearing her wedding ring still? I don't, I didn't look for that detail. There's a shot somewhere. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me. I saw a flash of something and I thought, yeah. that's an interesting choice. Why would I still have a wedding ring on? And then I thought, well, maybe we're just separated and not divorced. But, yeah. uh, oh, sorry. Was that no, you, no, you're fine. Noise. Okay. All right. Cool. Welcome to my, welcome to my world. <laughs> There's noises. Okay. So, um, but, okay. Thank you. This makes sense. Now I'm, I, because as I was watching last night and I was so taken up with everybody else's stuff in the episode, not just, you know, my story, um, which is a very actor like response. <laughs> or, you know, where's my line? Where's my scene? But I was so taken in by the other characters and what they were doing and then trying to think, well, wait, what is, what is, what's up with this guy? And I'm sure when I was on the set, I was, things were explained to me mm-hmm. in great depth. Like, okay, here's the story. This is your husband. You haven't seen him in a year, but he's an alien. But then later in the episode, it's the real guy. And you're not really coming to grips with the fact that he's an alien, but he's saying a few, you know, they must have filled me in a lot, right? I don't know. But Maybe it would have it. been better to leave you clueless. I mean, because she doesn't have access to this information. That's right. But so. they would have said, it was, yes, says, where's Charlie? That's weird. Yeah, that's true. And he says this, that's weird. So because, you know, you could see it in in Sarah's reactions, like just those little moments of, OK, I don't know what that's about, but let's. Right get back to the, you know, stay on point here. Um, There was so much that they wrote into that. It was really compelling and um, yeah, very moving. And then it got me so curious, like, well, what is up with these people and what's the story? Mm -hmm. And how is it that there's a, a doppelganger, a double of himself, an avatar, Exactly right. And then how does my son just metamorphose out of, like, what's up with that? The only thing that I found, um, if I were to do it now, I would have raised my hand and said, okay, somebody explain this to me because this doesn't make sense. If a mother loses a nine-year-old child and the child miraculously appears in front of her, like, a 3D, like she can actually touch his hand. I don't care how much she loves her husband and how how uh, compelling that relationship is. I don't think she would take her eyes off that child until they take him away, even knowing that he's not real, even knowing that. I think the the grief and the longing for someone who's dead is... To me, that overpowers every other response. And so in the end, like, you know, I take my, like, I have a really, you know, a, a, a moment with him. But then I turn my focus back to Jack and it's all about the two of us. That that was the only thing that I thought, 
I'm not sure. That that, I think yeah. I stared at that child until he disappeared. Yeah. And what mothers would have let him disappear? Yes. You know, at the same time, it's like some people, I mean, it, it, so you say he's not real. Okay. Let's, you're asking me to take this on faith. He's right here in <laughs> front of me. You know, he's been gone for a year. It's, he sounds and smells and looks like him. Um, I'm not leaving. And why can't I hug him? Why can't I hug him? Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh gosh. I would not, I would not be holding my child's hand. You know, you know how you are after your kid's been gone for, you know, to summer camp for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Were you a parent at that point? No. Okay. No. Mm -mm. So, so having since been would have yeah. likely informed like the, like, your your eyeline and like everything wow yeah so i'm curious as to whether i made that choice or whether that was a a, a, a directorial choice um and it could i mean let's be real richard's the star of the show yeah. so you know as a writer and as a you know you focus everything toward the like he's the one that the audience needs to follow not the little boy who's an alien and not me, who's never going to show up again. It's Richard. So everything needs to be, you know. Centered on him for so sure. I understand that as a, as, you know, being in the TV world, but um, just as an emotional reality, I would take a, I would second guess that choice mm -hmm. on my part. Yeah. Such a big component of this show is is the duality of the world in which these these paramilitary uh, officers and enlisted live, and they have to balance their life on base with the knowledge that there is a portal to other worlds and an active alien threat knocking on our door against people who are going about their daily lives in their daily loops. You know, getting up, getting coffee, going to work, coming home, seeing their kids and going to bed. And, and fixing their car. And fixing their car. You know, this is important. And uh, our experience with Sarah was one of the first times that we saw outside of the base. This is very early on in the show. And to be frank, it only gets better. Um, we're, we're, we're dealing with, you know, I, I have to be off world at, you know, uh, 0900 but my father has cancer and I mm. have to get back and see it. Those are elements that come into play later on in the series. And they work so well together because, you know, what if you could just stumble across a piece of alien technology or something that can cure that parent of that cancer? Oh, yeah. And it's like, what do we do with this? Do my own personal interests come into play here? You know, what am I willing to sacrifice for my own personal, I mean, that's not exactly what happens later, but yeah, we, are, yeah. we are dealing with those questions as we watch the show, you know, while they're trying to have some semblance of a normal life and deal with extraordinary situations. It's, it's a, it's one of the best aspects of the show for taking place in the here and now, because it's completely relatable. Can you, is there, yeah, is there, ahead. can I ask, and pardon me for Please. asking Stargate questions, but, um, 
Is there kind of a prime directive like there is with Star Trek? That's a great question um, because when we're going through the gate, we are visiting uh, advanced a, a couple of advanced. There's a there's a story reason why there aren't a lot of advanced races, um, but we are basically going through and and monkeying with with other uh, with other cultures in terms of what they believe. We are. We are far, as far away from Prime Directive pretty much as you can go because we are going out there to interfere, to free people mm-hmm. from false gods. So, yeah, that's a very good – that's a very valid question. And it creates its own problems as a result. There are planets that are nuked oh, yeah. as a result of us visiting them, you know? Oh, there's, yeah. there's one in There's one later on in the show where two – Two warring nations find out that there are aliens, and one of them controls the Stargate. Can you imagine how the others, how the others feel not having access to that technology, and they go to war? You know that's what's so that's what's so brilliant about the show. Well, that's also a key difference between um, Star Trek, for instance, for instance, and Stargate, because Stargate took place in contemporary times, whereas Star Trek was in the future, an idealized humanity. Yes, but we and get to so see how Mil- we deal with these things. Yes, so Stargate was more like contemporary, what we understand of as the military, mm-hmm. including when soldiers have to be deployed somewhere and they can't go home necessarily just because their father's dying of cancer. Right, exactly right. And find and guess what? Ha- I mean, you can imagine what happens when other nations find out that we have access to this technology and they don't. So the geopolitical machinations are uh, are ridiculous, and we have to lean on our our extraterrestrial allies a little bit to to you know help reinforce the point that the show that the the gate is where it probably should be. It's crazy. I mean, there's start with SG one, and uh, yes. I, I no, will I reach out to you and see how you think. Yes, yeah, because so by the way, you so- will get it. I, I'm interested in hearing your perspective on this yeah, episode yeah. after you see. The film and and those two shots in the house where the parents are still dealing with this trauma and he's got to go off on this suicide mission. Who who plays Sarah in the movie? Let's find out. Does she have scenes or is it mostly? It's one, a, it's uh, one shot. She's she's uh, long. It's longer blonde hair. Um, she's a smoker. Both of them quit smoking. I'd assume uh, Jack definitely did. Stargate the movie. Yeah, she's in one scene. And she was played by Cecil Hoffman. Oh. Are you aware of her? Cecil Hoffman. What else has she done? Strong Medicine. Provenance. ER. Picket Fences. LA Law. So. She hasn't been anything since 2001. But yeah. I do know Cecil Hoffman. And she was a contemporary of mine. I can see her face in my mind's eye. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it was. She's in it for a blink, and um, yeah, that's that's it. But it's it's enough to establish the characters on their journey, and yeah, um, yeah everything everything of that. It's it's one of my regrets about the show is that we never saw Sarah again. I would have loved to have come back to that character, to have at least seen her happy. You know, to have at yes. least seen her not. I mean, move saying move on that's that's such a horrible thing that you don't move on from the death of a child but you know at least see her happy and i have we have to imagine uh that she did that that you know there was yeah but to your point i think that's a really important thing that uh theater can do for us Mm. that 
you know, uh, storytelling can do for us is to reassure people who are going through the death of a child that, um, no, of course, you're never going to forget the child. No, of course, you're never going to stop dreaming about them and having moments of what if, what if, what if, but you will be happy again. You will be as happy as you were before the death of your child. It'll be different, but you are capable of the same, you know, heights of happiness. You deserve to experience joy. Yes. You You don't have to bury yourself along with your child. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough thing for a lot of people, you know, I I imagine this for anyone who has, who has suffered the loss of a child, this would be a tough thing for anyone to watch or because we can all say, well, you know, you know, you, you don't have to do X, Y, or Z. Like for instance, that's great. Don't bury yourself along with your child. But for, I mean, it's one thing to say it. And who knows how long that will be. Yep. It'll be different for everybody, but there will come a day yep. when the grief will ease and you will be able to remember your child without that stabbing pain in your heart or that big hole in your stomach. Especially if your child was happy, you know, yes. and, and, and developing it happily. Yes. Um, yes. Have, you, have you seen The Deep End of the Ocean? No, but... Michelle Pfeiffer, Treat Williams. No, I think I read the book. Ah, uh, okay. It's a good movie, too. The parallels are very similar in terms of the, the arc of the grief. So, You know, it's case... hard for me to watch or read. Um, and uh, when my children were little, I could not watch uh, anything that was a thriller that involved a lost, kidnapped, stolen, or murdered child. And... Uh, that and I thought, man, like that's a lot of literature that I can't read anymore. But when my kids got older, I was then it started to come back. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I narrated an audiobook um that had a, a that was about a death of a little girl, like a pretty brutal murder. Wow. Um and I so I regained that ability to watch that, but um you know, as I was watching last night, I realized, wait a minute, I've done at least three or four. I have played that mother who's grieving. And uh, like, I remember really well the the effects of that. And I think that I think that bled into my real life because I used to have real well, I guess every parent does. It is every parent's nightmare. But it would really, really distress me to think of anything happening to my children. <laughs> and um, yeah. And then I realized, wait a minute, I've played that role several times on screen or on stage. So yikes. It's intense stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons why the the why Cold Lazarus hits, hits so hard because as... Uh, a part of the canon of the show, it enables Jack to move forward with his story because yeah. Rick wasn't going to play Kurt Russell from the movie. You know, he's off the wall. He has to have humor. So he had to find a way to adapt that. Uh, yeah. And this episode dealt with one of the reasons why he's so off the wall, 
because as fans, we know that he's now going to have to suppress a lot of that self-loathing and move yeah. on from it uh, in his own way. So, yeah. and it's, it's a great coda to the film and it launches him into a new headspace for the show because now he has a group of three people who love him more than life itself and will go through that gate to whatever come, uh, come yes. what may. So yeah. What a treat. You're in for a real treat. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Tell us about uh, how you came to, I want, I want to get to, to your writing particularly. Tell us about how you came to acting. Who are your heroes? Who, who, who opened these doors for you? Well, I was, um, I'm the youngest of eight kids. Oh my gosh. My father died when I was a baby. Yes. So my mother raised us and she was a music teacher. And we ended up at a, her first job after my dad died was at a small college in North Dakota. And she was on the music faculty. And so uh, the there was a college opera production called uh, an opera called Dido and Aeneas. And my mother played the sorceress, the like the bad person. And um, they needed some angels. And I was recruited from kindergarten to be an angel. And <laughs> that experience of being on a brightly lit stage and the house lights were like I hadn't. I think we had one rehearsal in an afternoon. I was, my mind was blown and I got to wear red lipstick and a white angel gown. And it was so thrilling, scary, uh, dramatic that I think it was, you know, that set me on the road to destiny from that moment. I mean, I wanted to be other things, a painter, a veterinarian, but Probably from age 10 or so, I thought, no, I really want to be an actor. So um, I was pretty single-minded about it. And uh, I grew up mostly in Nebraska, my mother's job following the North Dakota gig. And um, when I was 19, I moved to New York. I went to the School of the Arts at NYU, which is now Tisch School of the Arts. And I was, I spent about nine years in New York City and then got a job in L.A., moved to LA and I've been here ever since wow. I came here for work. I didn't mean to live here, but here I am. Wow. Has it been fulfilling Some years later? <laughs> so <laughs> has it, um, has, has it, has it been as, as fulfilling as you'd hoped? Yes. Yes, it was. And, um, you know, one of the funny thing is, well, when I was approaching age 40, I'd always loved writing. And I always knew this was like a side-by-side -side mm. passion of mine. But I always thought I was a writer in service to my acting career. And I started to take a, a class at some point. I'd written a bunch of things, like a play and, you know, a novel that never that I never finished and a screenplay that I never finished and a musical that I never finished. Um, but it was just sort of a thing I did on the side. And then I took a class in it and my teacher was so uh, encouraging and he published um, two of my essays in the Santa Monica journal, which was a uh, quarterly through Santa Monica college. And um, 
it was so thrilling. And I loved being in a place where I was judged just on the quality of my words. I didn't have to worry about how I looked, what I was wearing, if I was too fat, if my skin was bad, if my nails weren't, you know, like all the Hollywood, mm-hmm. like, man, you got to be camera ready all the time. And nobody cared about that. And I, it it was really thrilling to me. And I was approaching 40 and the roles were getting less interesting. I was playing the mom a lot. And, um, and I just sort of gradually realized, I think I'm a writer. And then I got married. I had three children like in my 40s. So that was late yeah. and boom, boom, boom. And then I was I was doing a series when I was pregnant with my first child, and uh, they didn't want the character pregnant, so they replaced me. Oh, and I, th- I thought, oh, but, but, I've I've never been fired. Anyway, it all worked out fine. Um, I was married to a litigator, so he pointed out to them that we were already into production and it was pay or play. So they, they paid me ultimately to go home and finish my novel and have my baby. And um, so it all worked out fine. Um, And I just thought it's a sign. Mm -hmm. And so I raised my kids pretty much without acting. I mean, I did a few odd things here and there and a, like a, you know, waving my salary to do this little, film or uh, an educational something or other. But mostly I was at home and I was, I had a four book deal with Doubleday and I was really happy and I didn't know if I would ever go back to acting. And then I did like one day I woke up, my kids were in middle school. I thought, Oh, I could actually go to auditions and things. So I've been doing that. And then, um, and then a few years ago, I realized that, I had spent 13 years as a volunteer at the Braille Institute narrating books on tape back in the uh. old days for free. And and then I remembered, wait a minute, but then my agent called up and said, hey, I know you do this volunteer thing. Would you be interested in narrating a whole book? It was, you know, books on tape. This was back in the 90s. And I went, yeah. And I narrated one and it won an Audi Award, which was so brand new I didn't know what that was and nobody did well now it's a really big deal it's so anyway a few years ago I thought I wonder if I could revive that career and of course the entire landscape has changed in 25 years but um I sort of figured it out and I have a little recording booth in my closet upstairs the best space yeah, it's, it's, it's the best it's spot. There's great. no no sound can get out around your clothes. It's great. So what yeah. what won the audio award? Which which story? It was a category that no longer exists. It was a book called Honky Tonk Hat, and the author was um, Karen Kajewski. And I don't think it's available oh, anymore. Okay. I have it. I have it on little cassette tapes. <laughs> it was an abridged audiobook, oh, which was okay. its own category. So the category of abridged audiobook, I don't think exists anymore. And it wasn't my narration that won the Audi, but the book itself right. did, including my narration. So I claim it on my website. Of course. And um, but you gotta like 
search back in the archives to find. Yeah. But anyway. Tell us about, um, is the Wooly series, the, the, the four book, uh, epic from Doubleday. Tell us a little bit about that. So, um, this was, she's a, she's an amateur detective, which has, uh, an illustrious tradition, um, along the lines of Miss Marple was probably the earliest, most famous amateur detective. Um, She's a greeting card artist. She lives in LA and um, she just, you know, falls into murder uh, scenarios and she is not equipped for it. She doesn't have any physical courage. She doesn't have any particular skills in solving mysteries. She's sort of a hapless amateur detective. So, I wrote four books in that series. Uh, the first one called Dating Dead Men. Oh, that's the other thing. She's always dating in some strange... Uh, yeah, that's what my editor loved the most about the first book. She said, so we need her dating in the next three books. And I said, but she ends up with somebody at the end of book one. And she goes, well, you got to figure out how to undo that because that's <laughs> what I love about this series because she's like the serial dater. And <laughs> this was back when Bridget Jones' diary was kind of a big deal. So, um, yeah. So anyway, Doubleday eventually kind of went out of business. And um, and then I wrote a paranormal book that was for Harlequin, um, a division of Harlequin that deals in paranormal romance. So it was about shapeshifters and vampires. And Is that Keeper uh, of the Moon? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I was asked to write that. And uh, so that was really fun. And then I've written a bunch of short stories and, uh, yeah, essays. And for actually for things kind of like this, where my acting career um, was on somebody's radar and they asked me to contribute to an anthology, for instance, a horror movie that I did way back um, became sort of a camp cult classic. And they asked me to write about that. So, you know, so there's a lot of overlap in my acting and writing career. But um, anyway, so now I'm writing my sixth novel, which I have been writing forever, because (laughs) again, it's on spec. So when there's no deadline, I am just like a rambling writer. (laughs) It is way overwritten. And yeah. What uh, can, can you tease it for us a little bit? It's called My Fabulous Divorce. <laughs> okay. And it's not a murder mystery. It's the only book I'm writing that has, uh, I won't say there's no dead bodies in it, but it's not really a murder mystery. Okay. Yeah. What is it about uh, that genre? Um that keeps you uh, interested because it, it it you you can be passive in reading it, but it's not nearly as fun, you know. And right. it's one of those that ideally you can share with someone else while you're going through it to dis- to dissect it and discuss it because the author is layering clues along the way for people who are. I mean, I I would gather I would gather that you are for people who are you know oh, yeah. looking for them. Oh well, for me the way that I write there's typically two kinds of novelists. There's the ones who plot everything first and then write according to the plot that they like, 
you know, that they figured out. And then there's the other kind who are the non-plotters. We call them um, colloquially pantsers, short for by the seat of your pants, where you just get an idea, you start writing, and that's me. I get an idea and I think, oh, as soon as I can write chapter one and I start writing, I'm happy. The problem is that I go on a lot of tangents and a lot of, and so typically I have to write a very long first draft. Then I have to go back, figure out by the end of it, who did it, and then go back and make sure that I'm giving the audience a fighting chance to figure out themselves who did it. Um, So at the end, I might say, you know, oh, the butler did it. And then I have to make sure that the audience was introduced to the butler pretty early on. Right. There's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a formula. So there's a lot of tropes. There's a lot of, you know, traditions and playing fair with the audience. Um, you got to give them all the clues that they need if they're smart. And yet not too many because you don't want people saying And this is where other writers become really useful. And I have a lot of writer friends and we do this for each other. So we'll read and we'll go, "Eh, I knew by chapter three who it was. Or say, wait a minute, I got to the end. You told me who'd done it. Who is this person? I don't even remember meeting them in the story. And a writer loses that perspective pretty fast Mm -hmm. So that's why other readers are really, really necessary. Absolutely. For I, this Pantsers, that's that's terrific. There is a Stargate writer, uh, a novelist by the name of Sabine Bauer, and she writes exactly the same way. These complex stories, when you're looking at them on the face, and, and I have, I'm surprised when I asked her, I was like, you didn't know where this was going? She's like, no. I would be terrified of painting myself into a corner and be forcing yeah. to scrap it and start over terrified if i didn't plot when i write i always plot yeah but I, what an I, adventure I, I the tried, other way is. i've tried to to turn myself into a, a plotter yeah and sometimes you're forced to because you might have an editor or a publisher who says i need an outline so then you got to come up with an outline now typically they won't try to match your finished manuscript eight months later with the outline but you still have to force a, a, a story into like three double spaced pages or whatever, right? So, yeah, they want to be sure that you're not going to get stuck and not deliver them. Well, I guess that's a part of it, uh, the product, but they also want to see what the product's going to look like too, like an idea yes. of it. So, yes. man, that's tricky. It's so tricky. So. But the other thing is, I really, uh, every every time, there's so many moments, I'm sure you see this too, right? In your work, where you go, how the heck am I going to get, like, I know where I start from, it's not, how do I get from A to Z, but how do I get from Q to Z, or even W to Z? It's those moments of, oh, no, no, how do I... Mm-hmm. And then you're in a sh- in the shower, or out for a run, or and suddenly, <laughs> it's like the skies are opening in the Hallelujah chorus because you figured out the yeah. solution to some really tricky thing. Stephen King talks about going through the same thing with the stand, where he realized that he was in a rut with the characters once they made it to to Colorado, and his solution was to 
blow up half of his characters. Yes. You know? And it's just like, yes. you have to sometimes. You have to yes. kill your darlings. Well, I have discovered in every uh, murder mystery that I've written, which is only five. Oh, all... Only five, folks. Only. Oh, come on. Well, <laughs> That's you great. Know, as you know, well, like compared to Stephen King, who's, right, okay. you know, wh- whatever, 300. But <laughs> I've discovered that somewhere around page 200, I'm at that point where it's the long slog. And the only way to inject some energy is to kill somebody that I didn't expect to kill. Every single book, it happens. The problem with what I'm writing now is it's not a murder mystery. So what it's, are you going to do? It's a, it's a genre with fewer rules. And um, how do you, what do you do if you can't just kill somebody? Mm-hmm. It's a, Yeah. Yeah. It's a literary problem, the, which is why it's taken me all this time to... There are plot twist generators out there online that you can go to. You, yeah. just, you, you, you flip it and it says, uh, 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 the antagonist declares their love for some or something, you know, whatever. And it's just, it's, it's hilarious. But yeah, you have to work your way through it. And that's, yeah, yeah writer's block and everything else goes goes along with that. It's like, okay, th- we have to, sh- I know where we're going, but at this point no. we have to shake this up. Yes. Yeah. I have a Richard Dean Anderson story for you. Please. Okay. So I'm sure I just set it up badly, but so the year would have been, let's say 2006. Okay. And I'm married. I have uh, three little kids and I'm living in Topanga Canyon in California And my daughter goes to a school called Viewpoint, and they have these assemblies every week. And I'm new because she's just a kindergartner, right? So I don't know the culture. I don't know. But I go to the first assembly, and uh, and I'm sitting there trying to, you know, I'm squinting, trying to see her. So it's this little girl. This was the picture from Viewpoint. She was a kindergartner. So anyway... So I'm sitting there and there's this guy next to me and he's got this full on. Now, this is just before everybody and their dog has a camera on their iPhone. Right. So he's got the full on big camera and the lenses. And he's like just really taking up his space to take an exact picture of whatever he's, you know, whatever kid he is. So anyway. He sits down and I turn to him and I say, um, which one is your daughter? This is my first assembly. And he looks and he goes, oh, which one's your kid? He goes, mine's that one. And she's, I guess she was in first or second grade or something. And I said, mine's a kindergartner. And she's like, you know, the third from the, yeah. And I said, I stuck out my hand. I said, my name's Harley. And he said, Harley, I know. I was married to you. And I went, oh my God. I said, Richard, how are you doing? He said, great. How are you doing? And we hugged each other and we filled each other in. We hadn't seen each other since that day in Vancouver. Wow. Back in what a small world. 
did he did he see you in in the rise? Did he did he deliberately sit next to you, or was that no, an accident? No, we were completely like you know like kid like parallel play, like completely oblivious. He was just the guy next to me. I was like, who's this guy who's got this big camera set up? Like, wow. And your daughter and Wiley went to the same school. Mm-hmm. Is but that Wiley something? would have been a year or two yeah. or three older. Yeah. Man, that's great. He was born in 2000. So anyway, so he said, uh, you know, we like, what are you doing these days? He said, I don't act much anymore. I, I just, I do this. And I went, I don't act much anymore either. I've got two, I've got twins in a, who are in preschool and then Audrey, who's there. And, um, and I said, and I write novels now. Wow. It was so interesting. Like, Wow. We both kind of got out. <laughs> right. You know, you don't have to be in one fixed thing throughout your life. You know, yeah. you can dabble here and there and that's okay. It was a revelation to me. I, I seriously never thought until I was about in my late thirties that I would ever do something other than be an actor and like live and die on stage. And, uh, Yeah. What's next? What do you think is next? I mean, I mean, oh, I, I assume yeah. grandchildren, you know, at some point here. Um, well, Audrey, that little girl just graduated from UCLA. All right. And my twins are just 20. So, um, so maybe a little while. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of hoping it's a little while. <laughs> I, was just, I was glad they all got through high school without making me a grandmother. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, they're, they're just three really interesting and wonderful kids, but I don't see any of them about to get married and have kids yet. So, but, um, I, I really do believe I'm a, a writer. I'm a novelist at heart and acting figures into most of my novels. And I feel like, uh, uh, if I never act again, that'll be okay. But if I never wrote again, that would not be okay with me. So, so my big plan is to, yeah, is to finish this novel. Cause I already have figured out like enough to start the next one, number seven, but I got to finish this one first because otherwise it's just like the big unfinished. It's just taking up so much psychic weight right. in my, in your headspace. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There is something extraordinary, and it hasn't happened to me in a long time, about you you, you form an idea for a scene in your head, and I don't know if this is with you, but it is with me. I've I've got to drop everything and get my laptop out and, and vomit it into Microsoft Word, and I'll sit there for two or three hours, and it's then it's it's there it's like this realized thing that could not stay in here anymore and yes i've got to get it out you know because it's all there oh shoot i've got to get this thing out right it's it's all in play i don't know if i'll be able to keep it in this this shape for long yeah. you know because it's 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 a it, it's yeah. a it's it's not it's a flexible material in your mind and then when yeah. it's on paper or in the computer it's concrete and you want it to be yeah. exactly right Yes. Yeah. Don't you think, David, that sometimes you are channeling? Yeah. Yeah. This isn't I mean, entirely me. Be, 
Yeah. Some people claim to literally be channeling from other spirits. Yeah. Well, it's not that I don't believe in other spirits and channeled writing, mm-hmm. but don't you think that we all do it to some degree? I mean, no, it, we don't always do it. Obviously, if you have an assignment, you got to write. Right. Yeah. It's, you got to spit that out. I, yeah, it's, yeah. I will yeah. wake up uh, in the middle of the night and my subconscious has been dancing with something. Yes. And I, I pull it out, that piece of it, because I recall it. And I'm like, why have my why has my brain been go, been there? Uh, uh, why? You know, it's connect. It's interfacing with something else. I yes. think. I think yes. it's plugging into yes. something else. And I think that that's where a lot of of our creativity comes from, because when we're turned off, we're just free. Yeah. You know, yes. and then we we come back and it's like, OK, I got to go get some coffee and start my, my task and and get in my my life loops, you know, so that I can bring home the bacon. A, but when you plug in and do it for Stargate. Yeah. Yeah. But when you plug in and you do a story and you're chewing yeah. on that scene and those characters, you're not making the characters talk. Those characters are talking. They are oh, their own sure. self-contained entities. And yes. um, you can't stand in their way or they'll yes. push you out of their way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's, yes. And it is terrifying to think, oh, my God, I'm going to lose this. Right. Because you can lose it. You can't come to a grinding halt. And it's like, I I don't, I can't remember where my end is, where my end point in this line of thought is. And it's not, I can't manifest it as good as it was in here. Yes. So that's, it's, it's, it's crazy to experience. But what a high. I, I completely understand where you're coming it's from. So ex- I, I was asked to contribute to an anthology of short stories that were uh, Sherlockian. Mm. So inspired by the works of Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, right? And um, so I realized, okay, I got to start writing. I got to start writing, but I don't know what my entry, what's my gimmick? Who's my, like... The, it was too broad. It wasn't specific. And I thought, I've got to start because I'm a yeah. really slow writer. <laughs> and um, and one day I woke up and a voice in my head said, this is the first line of the short story. Write it down. And so I wrote it down, went back to sleep, woke up, looked at it and went, uh, what? Where did this come from? And the the sentence was... It's not every day that you come home to find your cat has turned into a dog. <laughs> what did you and do? I, what? <laughs> what? Well, I thought, who am I to argue with that voice that wakes you out of a dead sleep and says, write this down? So I thought, all right. Well, that's my starting point. It's not every day you come home to discover your cat has turned into a dog. So I wrote that down and I just thought it's like a game. It's like a writing prompt. It's like an exercise in a creative writing class. Like here's the prompt. Figure yourself out of it. Yeah. So I thought, all right, well, this is inspired by Sherlock Holmes. So it's coming home. I'm, I'm in London and it's not an apartment. It's a flat. Mm Mm-hmm. And what's my character doing there? Is she British? No, she's an American visiting London, but why? And how did the dog turn into a cat? And you know what? Or how did the cat turn into a dog? And a story started to evolve from that. Now, I will say it's the closest I've ever come to emailing my editor and saying, 
I got to give the advance back. I, I'm not happy with this story, but you know what? A friend of mine, a writer friend said, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Send it in. And, um, and it ended up not just being in the anthology, but being um, added to something called Best American Mystery Stories of 2019. So that was very exciting. What's the title? I want to read it. Oh, it's called The Walk-In. The Walk-In. I was going to ask you, was there an actual like transformation or was there like a, a switch out of the pets? And it's like, no, I'm going to read this and find out for myself. So yeah. this is great. Yeah. The walk-in Harley. So that became the central mystery was how the heck is a cat going to turn into a dog? Right. Is it an actual like transmutation or has someone switched yeah, your pets? Exactly. Or... Is it, yeah. Is, is, it, is it the world as we know it or mm-hmm. is it something paranormal mm-hmm. or extraterrestrial? So anyway, I'll let you. Yeah, that's great. Because the sentence is inert enough by itself that you can take it she could just be like trivially saying well my pets my pets changed like what's really going on that's cool yeah thank you for sharing that for the sake of the game it's it that was the original anthology for the sake of the game and then um also best american mystery stories or best american there's a series where they every year they look at various genres of stories and all right. Yeah. All right. That's so, great. I have uh, some fan questions for you. Yeah. A little bit more time. This is of this course. has been so cool. I, I love chatting with a, with a fellow writer. Lock Watcher um, wanted to know you were on only one episode of the show. How were you received? I, you talked a little bit about this. How were you received on the show by the other actors uh, that you had a chance to interact with? You were with the whole group in that one scene at the hospital. Super nice people. Super nice. And even though, I mean, as you know, um, even if you're just in a small scene, you tend to still, you meet each other at maybe the table read, in hair and makeup, at your costume. Anyway, they could not have been nicer. And it's not easy to walk into somebody else's show. So I've been a guest star on many shows, and I've also been uh, a series regular on shows where we have guest stars and it's very exciting to have new guest stars come in every Mm -hmm. week when you're a series regular because it just it makes things more fun it's like going to school and you have oh a substitute teacher so anyway oh a new guest star so um i've been on both sides of that and some shows are just more welcoming than others that one was extremely welcoming and um and it probably helped that they were just five episodes in and they were all like super enthusiastic happy to be there you know if you're on like season 12 of something right. people get a little tired and a Which little you want almost had so yeah, they were guaranteed four committed. seasons out of the date, out of the gate when they were with you. They knew that they had guaranteed four years oh. of work. That's got to be huge for an artist. Oh, so huge. So they were super. It's, you know, when you come on to a show and go, you know, I'm a huge fan and they're already over. It's like, yeah, fine. Thank you. I'm over it. But these people, it hadn't premiered yet. So they didn't have huge fans yet. So everybody had stars in their eyes. So uh, I just remember it being an, a really happy, happy, happy time. And also I knew that this show had rabid fandom 
because later when I started to do uh, book signings, like I would do book tours and inevitably somebody would show up with a DVD case and say, would you sign my Stargate? And uh, yeah. So, you so I get thought, it. wow, you guys are serious. Oh, I was only yeah. in an episode and they go, oh no, but it was an important one. That's exactly yeah, right. It's the origin story. Mama Knox Erica, I love your cup. Where did you get it? You keep you. Oh, let me see. Ah, uh, I'm Ooh. sure. I got it. I'm sorry to say, I'm sure I got it from Amazon because <laughs> I really like my mugs. I'm a coffee addict. <laughs> I can understand. Alanachi, uh, dear Harley, heartfelt greetings to your fans from Russia. We remember how nice it is to chat with you. I heard you love fantastic fiction. Did this happen after participating in SG1 or have you always loved fiction? Oh, you mean just fiction in general? I believe that that's what they're meaning. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I've been reading since like a voracious reader since I was... Yeah, no, I can remember Lady and the Tramp was my first book that I ever read, you know, the little golden book. And uh, yeah, I've been reading ever since. Is Lady a, 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 a Spaniel in, in the book? Yes, Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, and it's just like a little, like maybe I've got it here. <laughs> you know what I mean? In America, the little golden books, yeah. the tiny little yeah. With the trim on them. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So this is an interesting observation. Tinman said, uh, were you supposed, do you know if you were chosen uh, for the part uh, due to resembling Amanda Tapping at all? Because there is a sexual tension that runs throughout the show that, o that O'Neill and, and Sam are attracted to one another, but they can't, they can't manifest it because they're, they're in the military together. And Amanda Tapping and I had the same hair. Exactly. I thought, what are the chances? Did everybody in 1997 have the same hair? I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I... In fact, usually several times in my career, uh, they've made me change my hair, either cut it or dye it so that I don't look too similar to somebody else in the movie. Um, I, in fact, my hair used to be pretty brunette and I went blonde cause I did a movie with Elizabeth McGovern and, she, and they wanted there to be more contrast cause we were best friends. And so they made me go blonde cause Elizabeth had the, the brunette market mm -hmm. corner. So, um, <laughs> and I've, I've been blonde ever since, but um, I looked at Amanda and I went, we have the same hair that, that, that can't be unintentional. I, I think as well. Yeah, I think that But there's... nobody told me. Again, this comes from being pretty ignorant of what the whole gestalt was because <laughs> the show hadn't premiered yet. That's true. Yeah. And well... I don't think I had access to the previous five scripts even to read them. So Got it. Yeah, the, the, one of the reasons for, for Sam's short hair do was, it was uh, uh, Air Force regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, Amanda Tapping went to, uh, F I think it was Afghanistan, uh, for the, uh, for the, uh, the, 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 the sea tour, the, the tour where the actors go and, and visit the military and all oh, the, yeah. all the actors had long, oh, USO. the USO tour. 
Yeah. And all all the um, the females on the base had long hair. And so when she came back, when they started shooting uh, uh, more additional uh, episodes there, I think they were on the movie at this point, they let her keep her long hair because at that point it's like, well, if the Air Force is doing it, then. So that's yeah. that story. So a lot from greetings from Russia. Another one from Russia. Lucy K. Just thank you for your roles in, in films and TV. We love them. So nice. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Do you have any memories of working with the bridges on When Calls the Heart? Oh, or into, um, and, and not when is it into the West? No, Hearts of the West. Hearts of the West. I couldn't get them. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Bo Bridges is the. He's honestly the best husband I've ever had. <laughs> uh and that's hard to I mean, I've had some really good husbands. So not only was I married to RDA, as you say, um, I was married to Bill Pullman. Yes. I was married to, um, uh, oh gosh, where'd my brains just go? Arachnophobia. Oh my God. Speaking of which, arachnophobia. You know, Julian Sands, the actor. Yes, I know. He's he's disappeared. Yeah, it's awful. It's so... Yep. My daughter noticed Mount Baldy where he's hiking. It just... Anything can happen, you know? We, we never yeah, know. It, it's terrifying. If anybody is of a praying mm-hmm. bent, please pray. Absolutely. Yeah, they haven't. I, I don't I don't think that they've they still haven't found him. And at a certain point, it's just like, man, you know, um, Ross Jennings, Jeff Daniels, Jeff Daniels. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Great. Okay. husband. But Bo Bridges was something special. And that was a show that was just plagued with unlike SG one. That show was plagued with problems and uh having to do like mostly production problems and uh, union problems. Mm. And the, um, the, the union that is for like hair, makeup, uh, cinematographer, camera guy, like that union went on straight. Anyway, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. So there's, you know, as we say in the writing business, um, conflict reveals character so you know who people are like in the good times everyone it's pretty easy to be nice right but when the chips are down and things are awful that's when you discover people's real character and i have to say Bo bridges is one of the most deeply good people i know he's just a great guy he's a good guy great guy to be with in the trenches when things got really bad on that show (laughs) But we had such a great writer, such a great, um, yeah, the guy who created that show, so talented, so funny. It was a really, it was a great show to do. Did you know that Bo is the uh, the base general for the last two seasons of SG-1? No, I got to watch it now, obviously, yeah, all he, the way to the end. He repl- but wait a minute. So Richard leaves at some point, yes? He uh, started uh, cutting back his time in season six through seven and eight to spend more time with Wiley. 
Season eight, he takes Don S. Davis's place as as the general of Stargate Command. Season nine, Bo comes in. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a long story. It's like Mash, actually. Oh yeah. In terms of the character replacement, it's very like it's very it's very thoughtfully done. So yeah. Yeah, the chat also observed uh, Sarah makes an additional appearance in a photo in season seven in the finale at Jack's house. So she's you're still there. I have a set of those photos, by the way. I was going to show them, but I was like, that's way too fanboyish. You are not going to do that. So <laughs> I have the I have um, uh, envelopes uh, that, with letters that she sent him. So there, he has a cigar box in that episode, and there's photos oh, wow. of the family and letters from Sarah while Jack was away. And there's those are a few of, of my people. I, I love I love them. So. Yes, I saw that in episode six, the letters because yeah. I was uh, I was drawn. To, I thought that's not my handwriting. <laughs> they should have the props people should have given me those letters to do in my own handwriting. <laughs> but when you're a guest star, you don't. Know, always get to those little those details i love like like who's responsible for that you know okay we need someone with with you know with bubbly you know circular okay you can go ahead and do yeah. it so it's all the stuff yeah. that comes Usually into a show it's it's the props people they're on top of it so they don't want to wait around till the actors on set and have yeah they want it to be all ready to go and yeah that's cool so i'm, I'm not dissing the props <laughs> but that's my part you know let me sign those that's funny. Summer, uh, my moderator, said, uh, just wants to know, thank you so much for your work at the Braille Institute. My grandmother was blind, and she relied heavily on those books. I also volunteered when I was older. So glad that you're continuing this work in a different way as technology evolves. Yes. Matt, I loved it. It's That's really cool. Matt Witten's audiobook. Um, so you were you are involved uh, in, is it the audio version for Killer Story? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And also his uh, novel before Killer Story, which was The Necklace. The Necklace. Another really hardcore thriller. Oh, my God. Both of those books. He really knows how to ratchet up the suspense. And uh, in both books, I had to stop narrating at the end because I was crying. Oh, like, wow. Really, really very moving and exciting books. Is it easy to get sucked in to the material? Yeah, it's impossible not to, okay. really. I mean, actually, okay, I'll say this. <laughs> For nearly every book I have narrated, I cry at the... It's like, well, you know when you finish a project, there's just this sort of like huge exhale of... And then often it's followed by like a little burst of euphoria, and which is then followed by uh depression sometimes mm -hmm. do you read the, you know. the book beforehand or are you oh yeah okay now at the braille institute i never did okay and uh the couple of jobs that i had before my my comeback um i didn't read beforehand because i was just not used to reading beforehand and also there was a director like on the set and um, but now I wouldn't dream of not doing it because there's all sorts of artistic decisions to make. Like I have to figure out how many characters there are, who's got accents, what are the words that I either have to look up or names that I have to contact the author and 
see how they want that done, like some artistic choices. But also, if I give somebody a kind of annoying voice, and then it turns out they're in seven eighths of the chapters. Oh no! It can be overwhelming. So um, you have to pace. You have to vocally pace yourself with the characters. Yes, oh. and and also, uh, I mean, I tend to go pretty low key on the differentiating between character voices. Like I don't do a lot of lowering my voice for a guy, but um, I do some. So you just want to make sure that you don't have suddenly a chapter where there's seven people and they all sound alike. Like you, you need to make choices at the start. And I've had to go back and redo chapters. Mm -hmm. Like when things don't quite, uh, well, in Matt's book that I just did, I, I narrated one character and then realized when I was all done with the chapter that she came from New Zealand. It's like, okay, how did oh, I not no. see this when I first read it? And also when I just narrated it. So I had to go back and give her a New Zealand accent, which I had to go research because I don't have a New Zealand accent. Just No, that, that's not necessarily easy to do. Do you have a producer assisting you when you're going through this or is it just no. you? Okay. I this is just me. So I'm I'm producing and yeah. narrating. And the first couple books I did, it took me forever. Like I was, I, I did a friend of mine, her series. And I said, would you mind being my guinea pig series? Her name is Patricia Smiley. She's a really good writer and a really good friend. She said, sure. So um, I said, I'll just do it for free. She goes, no, yeah, I'll pay you. Well, I'm glad she paid me because it took me forever because there's so much technology to figure out. But after the maybe first four books, I realized finally what every narrator realizes once they start to get a lot of work is you've got to outsource things. So then I started working with a sound engineer who does mm -hmm. the final edits for me because he's way faster and way better than I am. And what will take me like seven hours takes him a half hour. So... Yeah. Acknowledge your limitations. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's so cool. Uh, I, I, I love the growth of of uh, companies like Audible and and the, the audio just industry, in general, especially now that we're we've moved past physical media. So mm -hmm. abridgments, I, I agree with Stephen King. Generally, abridgments are the pits. And oh yeah, so it's, oh, you're missing yeah. chunks of a story that are sometimes arbitrarily excised. Oh, so. I don't even know who did the abridgment on uh, Karen Kajewski's Kajewski's book that I did a hundred years ago. Um, but now I'm not sure I would do an abridgment. I mean, how awful for the writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, we're taking a third of this out or more. Yeah, so. or more. I mean, you have to do that if you turn your own novel into a screenplay, which Correct. my friend Matt, is, uh, he's very adept at that, but he started out as a, you know, TV writer and screenwriter. But that in itself is like, that is a form of abridgment, but at least it's a different medium and what you Correct. lose in pages and dialogue, you make up for in getting, you know, visual cues. 
yeah storytelling yeah exactly as long as yeah, as long as the the uh, the actors are intent on on really uh, uh replicating that content as best as possible sometimes they may yeah. want to take it in a different direction so it's like yeah. yeah but i need you to hit these beats so yeah. so this is cool actors right actors Harley, this has this has really been uh, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for joining me. This is really cool. I had a blast, and now of course I'm going to become a fangirl. I think you're in for a real treat, and all of us are here with you through that. So um, I'd love to check in on you in the future when you've seen more. And I'm going to be in Malibu stalking Richard D. Anderson <laughs> if he still is there. I don't even know, but <laughs> get your DVD signed. <laughs> thank you thank so you, much David. and you everyone check out harleyjanekozak.com uh, and uh, we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely keep you uh, in the loop uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep your adventures in our loop so thank you thank you so much I'm going to wrap up the show on this side perfect Harley Jane Bye. Kozak everyone that, that was just a treat Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, we do the show for free. YouTube, uh, we make it available for free, and we do appreciate you watching. But if you want to support the show, buy a T-shirt. We offer tank tops, sweatshirts, T-shirts, hoodies, and all ages, as well as cups and accessories at dialthegate.com slash merch. All you have to do is click on uh, uh, the merchandise tab at the top on the uh, dialthegate.com page and check out as fast and easy. You can use your PayPal or credit card, and that's uh, that's what we've got. My thanks to uh, my producer, Linda Gategabber-Fury, for helping to make this interview possible with connecting with, uh, with um, Harley. And uh, to my team of moderators... Uh, who I have every week uh, making this machine work. The Summer, Tracy, Jeremy, Reese, and Anthony. You guys are the best. And big thanks to Frederick Marcoux at Concepts Web. He's uh, keeping the website going uh, week to week. So thank you so much for tuning in. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate, and I'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner. Co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acri. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots. With contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. Dial the Gate.